God, you're worthy of everything. Uh, there's nothing you're not worthy of. Uh, God, you are worthy of it all, and you're worthy of our surrender, uh, worthy of our affection, our allegiance, our submission, worthy of an infinite number of songs that we could sing. Your glory defies our imagination. Your love is incomprehensible to the human mind. Your grace truly is amazing. So would you convince us as we gather this morning of what we just sang, uh, that you are worthy of everything that we could bring, anything that we could offer, anything that we would sacrifice, as it were, you're worthy of it all. And every time we gather, we've got to believe that there's a work that you want to do and that you, by your grace, you do accomplish to soften our hearts to the things of God, to pry our hands off the things of this world, that we would live lives that are unmistakably Christian, unmistakably submitted to you. And I pray as we open your word again this morning that you would rattle the apathy in our hearts Give us a hunger for you that didn't exist when we came in this room. Increase it where it did exist. In everything that you accomplished this morning, we pray that Christ would be exalted. He is the hope of the nations. He is the hope of our hearts. He is the security of our future. He's our living hope for today. So, Father, we magnify your name because of the work that you've accomplished through your Son. Spirit of God, we ask for your help as we open your word, that you'd show us who we are in Christ. Show us all we have in him and motivate us to live more completely for you. Because you deserve the glory and you're worthy of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. <clears throat> Well, I hope you can say in your heart, it's truly a joy to be able to sing and to worship together and pray that you are encouraged as we sing songs together. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. Always a privilege to be able to be with you. You can grab your Bibles. And we are finishing um, a series of books. Uh, we've called this series Big Help and Little Books because it's the third of three small books we are preaching through in the Old Testament. We started with Ruth and then we finished Jonah last week and this morning... We're going to preach your favorite book, Haggai. All right. And so we're going to be in a, in a maybe a little known place. And if you're looking for Haggai, you can use your table of contents. Maybe one of the easier ways to find it is if you go backward from Matthew, the beginning of your New Testament. It goes Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. So here's some of the reason. And I think if you've been here, I think you probably have felt the benefit of navigating through some of these smaller books that maybe we just kind of flip past as we're thumbing through our Bibles, is we believe as a church, what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God might be complete and adequate for every single good work. You've been encouraged by Ruth and Jonah? It's been an encouraging journey so far. And, you know, in the, in the book of Haggai, you know, you, you may not know anything about Haggai 
and that's okay. We're going to spend a little bit of time. Where I want to start this morning is I want to give you a little bit of backdrop and context before we drop into this book, because it really is important to understand the significance of the words that we'll hear as we cover chapter one this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you just a, a brief kind of snippet. I'll try to do this quickly of Old Testament kind of structure. So here's, here's the picture. When you look at the Old Testament in your Bible, you have 39 books in total. And the Old Testament really is comprised, like the historical timeline from beginning to end of Old Testament, really is comprised of about 11 books. So you can see them listed there, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And so that makes up the whole timeline of the Old Testament. So if you pick up your Old Testament thinking that all 39 read chronologically, you'll get lost pretty quickly. So this is helpful. Let's go to that next slide. So as it relates to books of prophecy, one of the things, and Haggai is one of those prophets, you have to be able to place them in the, in the, the era or the season of life uh, in redemptive history as well as just in the life for the nation of Israel. And so the book of Haggai falls in a segment or, or season for the nation of Israel called the return era. So we'll kind of cover that in a minute, but you can kind of see that you have this this exile period, 70 years of exile into Babylon that's followed by a, a return to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the temple, which is what Haggai and Zechariah focus on. And then, and then you have in Nehemiah, the, or what Ezra focuses on, then Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And then you have 400 years of silence between what we know as Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and, and the book of Matthew. So, so what I want to do is kind of give you a little bit of a, a quick kind of journey through because one of the primary themes of the book of Haggai is the temple. And if you don't have much framework for what the temple is and maybe even what it isn't now for us, it'll be lost on us a little bit, the significance of what we hear Haggai preach to the returning Jews that come back to Jerusalem. So the nation of Israel is at center stage in the Old Testament. They are this unique nation you're born from, as it were, one particular individual, Abraham, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their family. They form this peculiar, unique nation that God would use to, to show his character to the world. And the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 is that you're going to be a blessing to all nations, namely through a particular descendant, the Lord Jesus, that would come to rescue the nations. And so you have them, you have them journey from a place of just becoming a family and they end up in captivity in Egypt and what we know is the Exodus. God rescues them by his power through his mighty hand and they're, they're freed from slavery after 400 years. They come out of Egypt and they go into Sinai because of their disobedience. They wander longer than initially kind of planned because they defied God. And God establishes and gives them his law that we talked about weeks and weeks ago, the law, maybe summed up in one way, would be like the, the vision that God has for what it looks like to live a life that pleases him. So the law gives them a vision of what it means to walk with God. And in addition to that, you see in the book of Exodus, this, this peculiar tent, this thing called the tabernacle, that was just immense in its importance and its detail, is really the centerpiece and the epicenter of worship for the people of God. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt among his people, where they worshiped him and 
met with him and talked to him and interacted with him, where they sacrificed to him. And so you see this season where having gone through this season of the judges, what we looked at, and if you remember, the book of Ruth lines up with the book of Judges. The book of Judges outlines this season of rebellion in the history of the nation of Israel, like political upheaval, moral degradation. And what happens in the midst of that is they, they want a king. They don't want God as their king. They want a, a king, an earthly king, like all the other nations have. And so God gives them their wish, and a monarchy is set up. This kingdom is set up. And their disobedience is so constant and so significant that ultimately what happens, the kingdom is divided into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and ultimately those two kingdoms are conquered by the world powers of the time. And Second Chronicles 36, which is an interesting chapter to read as we go through Haggai, you might give it a look this week, read it, because it provides some helpful kind of summary leading in to the book of Ezra, and I'll get back there in a second, but Second Chronicles 36, 16 says this, says the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So this is really kind of the end of the, the kingdom era. Their disobedience is so significant, so heavy, there's no remedy other than for God to give them over and to be conquered by firstly the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the ultimately what become the Persian Empire. So Israel's conquered by Assyria in about 722 BC. Assyria and Judah are conquered by the Babylonian Empire in 586 BC. Second Chronicles 36, and this will become relevant as we read Haggai 1. I promise you there's purpose in me giving you all these details. Second Chronicles 36, 17 through 21 gives a picture of what happened to Jerusalem and the temple, and it says this in part. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So Babylonia is conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire about 539 B.C., and ultimately the people of Israel remained in Babylon for 70 years of captivity. All right, we're inching close. But here's what, what happens, and we're going to hear this word later, is that God stirs up the heart of a worldly king, namely Cyrus, the king of Persia. In Second Chronicles 36, it gives us a picture of this, that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom that basically said this, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And this is a, really in fulfillment of a portion of Isaiah 44, where Cyrus was positioned by the providence and goodness of God to be an earthly king who would send God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. A really substantial moment in history it's not just biblical history, history in general. You have the king of the greatest empire on the planet. God puts it on his heart to send this bunch of captives back to Jerusalem to build a house for God or ultimately to rebuild the house that was destroyed. So the exiles return to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's really the book of Ezra, kind of captures 
the, the rebuilding effort and really the hearts of God's people restored to the law, to the word of God, to obedience to God. You have Cyrus's decree in 538 BC. The foundation of the temple is laid in Ezra 3. The building stops due to opposition from the people of the land. And this is where it gets right into the thick of what we're going to talk about. So the rebuilding started. So in the book of Ezra, you have the rebuilding of the foundation laid. You have the altar rebuilt. And then it stopped. It stopped for about 14 years because of opposition from outside of the nation of Israel. Their adversaries came up against them. They wanted to stop it. And it did stop. But as we get into the book of Haggai, what seems to have happened is that all the opposition from outside seemed to move them to a place ultimately where internally they became apathetic and indifferent to the the nearness of God exemplified in the temple and they stopped the work. And Haggai comes, in addition to Zechariah, to preach to them. In Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this, and then we'll read our text for this morning. It says, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews. They, they told them of what God had said who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the book of Haggai really provides us with the content of Haggai's message to God's people that seems to be kind of silently nestled between verses 1 and 2 of Ezra chapter 5. Because we really don't know what he said other than what you see in the book of Haggai, and that's where we'll be today. All right, how's that for an introduction? So the main idea I want to leave you with this morning is this. Don't neglect spiritual priorities for selfish pursuits. Don't neglect spiritual priorities for selfish pursuits. That's at least one way to capture what's happening or what did happen in the nation of Israel. And that's where we'll kind of champion. That's the point that I'll, I'll try to emphasize this morning. Let's read Haggai 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, but we'll cover the entirety of chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> this is God's word for us. This is what it says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins 
while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. James Boyce put it this way, kind of summarizing the movement from what the temple was, the temple that Solomon had built. He says, gone was the glory of the former kingdom and temple. Gone was the great population. All that was left was the rubble of Jerusalem, the remnant of the people, and the task of restoration. Here's something I'd say just as a shepherding note for this morning. There's some of you where your spiritual condition could be likened to the rubble of Jerusalem. That there's really no life there. And part of what this book does is that for those that don't have life in God, if you're not spiritually alive, this book is intended to wake you up. One author said it's like an alarm clock. It's both unwelcome but necessary. And doubtless for some in this room and next service, the application for you is to come alive to the things of God for the first time. But for many of us, there's also a call to, to restore, like to rebuild or to build upon and to continue the work that God has done that he began at the outset of our faith and as it were to, to build on that foundation and, com- and work to complete the work that God has started in us. There's an interesting contrast between Ezra 3, 8 through 13 and Haggai 1. And Ezra, Ezra 3, 11, if you can just kind of picture this, when like in the midst of the rubble, the foundation of the temple was laid and the altar was rebuilt. So it wasn't complete, but it was partially there. When the foundation Just the foundation was laid. Here's what happened. It says, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. But now we're in a place where 14 years have gone by. And all there is is the foundation and the altar. And you could say the praising in that that form has stopped. And the people of God have become indifferent too rebuilding the house for God. The work stoppage initially brought on by opposition and fueled by fear at some point turned into apathy, complacency, laziness. And the mentality is a little bit like, hey, I know this is important, but now it's just, now it's just not the right time. Maybe a little bit like, a, nah, not yet. Sort of dynamic in addressing the things of God. It's like, I, I get that that's necessary, but I'm just, it's just not the right time. And I'm certain that for all of us, there's a, there's a spiritual avoidance that we get into in different moments. For some great, for some of us a little more subtle. Like we know that God is calling us to do something. Our mentality is like, nah, not yet. It's not the time to take seriously the things of God. But it's notable that the issue wasn't <clears throat> The issue wasn't disdain for the temple, it was delay. It wasn't a hatred for the things of God, it was just a complacency as it relates to the things of God. 
And Satan would be satisfied with us not having a disdain, but just merely delaying the things that God is calling us to do. But their priorities were mixed up. The word dwell here is really an interesting one. In verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So much of the temple language from Exodus and you look in First Chronicles, the building of, the, of Solomon's temple, so much of the temple language is bound up in God dwelling among his people. Look at Exodus 25 and 29. I don't have time to get into that. His presence was going to dwell there. But essentially what seems to be being said here is the people had nice houses to dwell in, but God didn't have a house to dwell among them. There wasn't any room for him. It wasn't a place for him in the rhythm of life for the, the people. Now, God doesn't need a house to dwell in, but there was no doubt something substantial about the house of God, the temple of God. And it said it was, it was much more than a location. It really resembled or it exemplified and symbolized the spiritual condition of the people. The nearness of God, the glory of God among them, showing that he was walking with them and them walking with him. It was so much more than just a structure. The temple wasn't merely a location, but reflected their spiritual condition. A return to Jerusalem was incomplete without a rebuilt temple. And the lack of a dwelling for God meant a lack of nearness to God, and all their toil proved to be fruitless. And we saw that in verse 5 and following right? The word ruins, like my house lies in ruins in verse 4 and in verse 9 can be translated waste or dry. So maybe we can say it this way, when we prioritize the work of selfish pursuits, it will prove to be a waste of time. When we delay spiritual priorities, our selfish pursuits will run dry. You have all this food, but you're always hungry. You're constantly drinking, but you're constantly thirsty. You got all these clothes, but you're never warm. All this money, but you can never have money enough. And if you feel like a twinge of like, ah, that hits really near to home, it might be that your priorities are mixed up. And you've abandoned spiritual priorities for selfish pursuits. When we neglect God, even the good things we possess won't satisfy. They're all vanity. And if anybody in the Bible or in history knows this, it'd be Solomon. Solomon, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is given to that topic. All the things under the sun that you could get or pursue, that's all vanity. It's like chasing the wind. He says that in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered, same word in our text, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In verses 7 through 11, we see God accentuate the fact that that the economic and agricultural hardship that they were experiencing was due to God actively opposing their efforts because they were delaying obedience to him. And maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. That maybe you feel like this sense of fruitlessness or vanity or 
futility and your pursuits, and it might be that you're kicking against God. He's opposing you because you're operating in pride, giving him the place of secondary importance when he deserves and he's worthy of it all, like we just sang a little bit ago. You see in verse 9, it says, the things that you brought home, I blew it away. In verse 11, I have called for a drought on the land. This really is a fulfillment of a warning in Deuteronomy that, hey, if you leave me, forsake me, and pursue other things in my place, these things will happen. There will be drought. Heaven will no longer give its rain or its dew. There'll be hardship. And two times in our text, there's this call to consider your ways. This, this phrase could be something like, set your heart on your ways. Look at the path you're walking. Look at its fruit. And make a determined decision as to whether or not you want to continue in that path. Set your heart on your ways. There's two things I want to share with you in this kind of section Firstly is consider your excuses. Excuses. Two things to consider. Consider your excuses. The first one is like, I'll get to it later, right? These people say, now is not the time to rebuild the house of God. So we, like we know, I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, like one of our excuses is like, I'll just get to it. Like, no, nah, not yet. I'll get to it later. I want to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm going to guess a lot of us can relate to that. And the simple message I would give to us to really marinate on is don't delay to tomorrow what God is asking you to prioritize today. Because we can, we can push forward a whole lot of things under the guise of having endless tomorrows when we don't have a guarantee for any tomorrows. So don't delay until tomorrow, the things that God is calling you to prioritize today. So that's one excuse. I'll get to it later. The second might be, well, it's, it's good enough. If you can picture just for a moment, 14 years. Just, just imagine a little bit what 14 years feels like. And having developed a little bit of a, a picture for how significant the temple was in relation to the people of God relating to him. If you can imagine living in Jerusalem amidst the shambles, difficult time, resources are scarce, the people are scarce, relatively speaking to what he once was. And all 14 years, what you see as the temple is a foundation and an altar. There's at least some of the perspective that could be captured in like, ah, it's good enough. I think it's, I mean, it's, it'll do, it'll do for now. Like, it's really not that bad. I mean, it's like we can sacrifice to it. And I just wonder for how many of us, like, that's, that's the position we have drifted to is like, well, I mean, it'll, I'll get by. Like, it's good enough. I mean, there's, there's enough veneer where I look like I'm doing okay to kind of keep people at bay. I mean, I go to church. I mean, I pray occasionally, right? It sounds a whole lot like the way Jesus described the Pharisees in the New Testament. It's like there's a, there's like a mirage of righteousness. Like it looks like it's right on the outside, but like his exhortation to them is like inside, you're, you're full of dead man's bones. 
There's no life inside. I just want to challenge us. As I prayed earlier, I read this from an author this week. I don't know which one, otherwise I'd give credit. And the statement was just merely this, is like, let our lives be unmistakably Christian for the people of God. Like our spiritual condition should be unmistakably of God. Not perfect, but we're pursuing God. We're not, we're not satisfied. Well, well, it's good enough. It'll, it'll get us by. I'll get to it later. It's good enough. And one excuse would be, man, it's just hard work. Anybody relate to that? Like the work of spiritual progress is hard work. And there's no escape to this. Yep, it is hard work. Building is hard work. Building the temple would have been hard work, especially with limited resources. And building our lives, as it were, growing in godliness is difficult daily work. Embrace the difficulty, but yet also remember you have everything that it takes to do the work. That's the hope of the believer, right? In 2 Peter chapter 1, through God's divine power, his precious promises, he's given us everything we need through his divine nature for life and for godliness. You have everything you need to do the work. As hard as it may be, as hard as it is, as hard as it feels, God has given you the power and the resources spiritually to do the work. Don't stop doing the work. Let your life be unmistakably Christian because Christ deserves the glory. Maybe one of our excuses is I just don't know where to start, so we end up not starting at all. And Jesus kind of simply answers this like, hey, just pursue me first. Like seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, your food, your drink, your clothing, all those other things will be added to you. Just seek me first. If you don't know where to start, seek God first. Make him first in your life. The matter of first importance. Every single day you wake up and bring others along, right? Allow God to bring others into your life to finish the work. We talk about that so often. Like our faith, our journey with God, our progress in the faith is a community project. It always will be. You see that in Ephesians 4. Until we, until we reach the fullness of the full measure of the stature of Jesus, you know what you're going to need? Leadership in the church and people in the church. God has put leadership in the church and his people as a peculiar family of faith so that you can reach, as it were, the, full, the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ until God returns. So put God's people around. But consider your excuses. Next, consider your expenditures. Now, this is not some passive-aggressive, like, way to preach this book so we get more people serving in the church. That might be a byproduct, but let me just kind of say this clearly. Like, this is not just some attempt to be like, hey, you got to serve better. Like, oh, great. I was waiting for that to come. You got to give more. But it would be foolish not to see the application like in our own lives as to considering the way we spend our time, our treasure, and our talents. Because part of the second exhortation that you see, the, the admonishment from God through Haggai in verse 9, it says, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. You rush to your own house, but yet you're slow to come to my house, if at all. 
Consider your energy or your time. Consider your talents and your gifts. Are you serving here? Do you just merely come on Sunday and consume? Are you, are you going to give your life to the things of God in the household of the faith so that, like Scripture talks about, the gifts that you've been given can be used to build up God's people and to glorify his name? He's given you gifts. You may not feel that way. He's given you gifts and ability and time and energy to be used and stewarded for his glory and for the benefit of the body of Christ and the community. Time, talents, and treasures. We need to consider where our financial resources go. In First Chronicles 29, again, another really interesting chapter to read. It was like the offering for Solomon's temple. Just like an unbelievable amount of resources poured in to build Solomon's temple. And one of the things I've never forgotten about the language in that chapter, and I'll just paraphrase, is David, as he, as he brings in this wealth of money and resources and materials to build the temple, at the end of it, he's like, who am I? Like, who am I and who are my people that we would be able to give as freely as this to this work? And he says this, it's from your hand that we have given to you. The very things that we possess, time, treasures, talents, all of it is a gift from God and all flows back to and for him. For from you are all things and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. And the work of building brings delight to God and glory to his name. And we'll finish with verses 12 through 15. Let's read this together. This is the people's response to what we just read. In verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And he says this, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The time is working against me here. There's two pieces here I want to highlight, is obedience and fear. Now, ultimately, the word of God is all over this chapter. Like the word of God, the message of God, the content of that message. You can see in verse 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 12, 13. Like you just see how central the word of God is to this section. The people of God responded to the word of God. Much like what Jesus says, like, hey, if you know these things, blessed are you if you what? If, if you do them. So you can hear the word of God, but not obey it, and it falls fruitless at your feet. But ultimately, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Neglecting spiritual priorities for selfish pursuits indicates one that we're not obeying God. Delayed obedience seems to be disobedience in God's eyes based on this. And neglecting spiritual priorities for selfish pursuits indicates we've also lost a fear of God. So they, it's like as if they started to fear the Lord assuming that it really wasn't present 
to begin with. And this is such a massive topic, but I want to summarize a couple of things here. There's obedience to God, fear of God. The fear of God, I would sum it up this way, is a biblical vision of God which propels us to live for God. A reverence for God which will necessarily produce God-honoring priorities. In 2 Corinthians 6, and a notable connection between that that old building in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple that's being rebuilt in Ezra that we're hearing through the prophet Haggai. That building now has been, as it were, replaced with little temples. The believer, Christians become the temple of the living God where the presence of God dwells and where our walls, as it were, are being built up to represent God in full. 2 Corinthians 6, and then 7, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, we are the temple of the living God. This is the church, Christians, the people of God. And 7, 1 goes on to say, since we have these promises, among them being the temple of God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And much like we saw at the beginning, that it wasn't a disdain for the temple that filled the hearts of the people. It was, a, it was really a delay. It's like, hey, this is important, but just not now. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this for the Christian. He said, what Satan likes to do in the heart of the Christian is that when you, when you give in to sin, maybe you prioritize things that aren't God over and above him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, Satan doesn't fill you, fill your heart with a hatred of God. But instead, he fills your heart with the forgetfulness of God. I just wonder if you find a drift in your life and a particular behavior or just in general, my guess is somewhere you could follow that route to a loss of the fear of God. Like you've lost a biblical vision for who God truly is. It's failing to inform your priorities and what we hear in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7 is that because we are the temple, we need to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see that in Philippians chapter 2. And the answer to the vanity of selfish pursuits and self-promotion is fear and obedience at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes Solomon comments on that same thing. <clears throat> After talking about the layer upon layer of vanity, he says the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the joy of this is like when we prioritize the things of God, we abandon selfish pursuits to pursue spiritual priorities. We gain the assistance of God. Did you see the message? Like once they obeyed God and chose by God's grace to fear him, the accompanying promise, God says, I'm with you. God goes from opposing our efforts to supporting our efforts because they've been rooted in obeying his words and fearing him. This is the last thing I'll share. There's this interesting picture. Look in verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people. 
I say this, when our priorities are mixed up, we need our spirits to be stirred up. And so what's interesting about this is when you look at, like in the Old Testament in a lot of different places, you see it in Exodus 35 and 36, like there's a, there's a stirring work that God does from beginning to end. Like his gracious initiative in the hearts of individuals, moving them from death to life and then degrees of holiness throughout the whole of their existence requires the stirring initiative of God. But it is interesting in this text, Pastor Bill and I were talking about this, how the order seems significant. They obeyed God, they feared God, and God stirred up their spirit once they did those things to lay their hands to the work. The the stirring, illuminating work of God to wake us up to our need for God and to wake us up to do the things he's called us to do. Having obeyed the voice of God with a renewed fear of God, with the presence of God, they did the work of God. So the stirring wasn't the end, the building was. Church family, if you're part of Crossway, you consider yourself a Christian in this room. Let me just reiterate this point. Because of our submission to God, our obedience to his word, our our biblical vision of him, namely a fear of him, let our lives be unmistakably Christian, not just in what's visible, but in the things that are invisible to those around us. Let our lives, our pursuits be unmistakably Christian. And if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, like we are really, really grateful that you're here. But my encouragement to you is not to walk away from this thinking, I just gotta somehow rearrange my priorities. Because if you don't give your life to God first, then he's not first in your life. Submit yourself to him. Run to Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is clear. All of us have broken the law of God. And as a result, like we're justly condemned in the sight of God, but God in his infinite grace and mercy, while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you can be saved if you trust in Jesus this morning. And from that moment, start the journey of progressive, progressively looking like Jesus in your life. And so I pray for us as a church that we be men and women who live unmistakably Christian lives, submitted to him, devoted to him. And if you're in this room, if we can help introduce you to Jesus and help you in that, walk with him. We'd love a chance to do that. Let's pray together. God, it's clear in your word that um, we never graduate from your grace, that what began is your good work to open our blind eyes that we might see the, the glory of God in the face of Christ, that our need for you to illuminate our eyes it isn't just at the beginning, it's, it's all the way through. We need you to stir up our hearts and allow us to see the glory of Jesus that surpasses and is better than the cheap glory of this world. So God, I pray you do just that. Would you help our lives as individuals and as a church to be unmistakably Christian? 
that we'd never look at our lives and realize we've neglected spiritual priorities for selfish pursuits and as a result enlisted the opposition of God because of our pride. Thank you that you're faithful even when we're faithless. Thank you that you promised to complete the work that you started in us. And I pray that we be men and women who are zealous to live out the life that you have so graciously given us. Thank you for your grace that saves. Thank you for your grace that sustains. Thank you for your grace that ultimately will present us complete in the end. And if there's anyone in this room, God, the Spirit, that has yet to bend their knee to you, I pray that through your supernatural work that you'd soften their hearts to the beauty of Jesus, that they'd run to him today. Jesus, you're all we have, but, but you're all we need. We have no boast and pride in the presence of God, Christ. And so we sing in response to what we've heard. We sing as a demonstration of our allegiance to Christ and our need for him. We love you. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Continue to, to do the work that you've started in us for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one more.